0: Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. This is part two of my two-part interview with Maureen Ryan. She was the TV critic for the Huffington Post, the Chicago Tribune, Variety, and currently she is a contributing editor at Vanity Fair. If you joined us last week, you know that she wrote a terrific book called Burn It Down, Power, Complicity, and a Call for Change in Hollywood. If you missed part one after you listened to this, go back and check that out. She talks a lot about uh, the harassment, the bias that is prevalent in the TV industry. This week we get into some well-run shows. We also talk a little bit about what we can do to improve the industry. We touch upon bad actors behavior and we also talk a little bit about unions and the Writers Guild strike. So that's this week part two with Maureen Ryan coming up right now on Hollywood and Levine. You also spend a lot of time in the book talking about shows that are run well.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, honestly, I'll never forget the day, you know, I was working on the story. I'll tell tell you, this is exclusive for your podcast. The story I was working on at the time was about Bull. And then I later published a piece in The Hollywood Reporter that said that Glenn Gordon-Karren and an actor from Bull and Glenn was at that time the showrunner of Bull, they both departed the series, which is what you're allowed to say in the trades. And I will let people in both of them. uh, There had been HR investigations in in connection with both men. Uh, What you want to read into that is entirely up to you. Um, So I was working on that story. And that was, again, like a heartbreak for me because like moonlighting, is a foundational show for all, like, in my view, like, it mm-hmm. was incredible.
0: And Glenn created that show Glenn and was the showrunner. Out. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so, and the thing is, you, you can read all the coverage of that show back in the day, there was so much chaos and so much, you know, insanity went on. Um, but so I'm working on this show and I'm hearing from people looking at full and it, you know, I actually reached out because the people at full understandably were very nervous because they did not know what the future of their show or the future of their boss was going to be. So I reached out to people who had worked on previous Glenn, um, Gordon, Karen shows and um, some people who worked for him on medium um, were willing to talk to me. And, you know, essentially they said, everyone I've ever talked to who worked for Glenn has said the following. I learned some things about writing from him, but uh, let me say this. Allegedly, they had a lot of experiences that left their self-esteem basically not in good shape from those work experiences. So, so Melinda, I kind of got to know her through that story and she's like, oh, this might be, a, I don't know if this is just irrelevant to you, but here's, you know, she had ascended to the rank of showrunner, she and with other creative, um, collaborators, ran a bunch of shows on CW, and she's still doing stuff in TV. She sent me a note that she sent to potential new hires for her writing staff. And it was so, I got to tell you, Ken, like, I remember reading that and just, like, starting to cry because I was like, I've always known there are good showrunners and and good-hearted people who, even if they mess up, are accountable, look after their staffs, try to be good people, that's always been something that's happened, but she just talked about here are the, the hours we'll keep, Here we'll be transparent about deadlines, um, we'll, you know, here's how we'll collaborate as a team, these are the expectations for meetings and this and that, and it was just so considerate that the person thinking of joining the staff was not just a potential writing hire, but, you know, a human being with a life, and... We want you to do a good job and to work hard, but here's how we're going to do things on our end to make your life, to make it possible for you to do your best work. And, you know, from everything I've heard from people who worked for Melinda, um, Shue Taylor, that's what, that's the kind of environment that she and her collaborators created. And so part of what made me emotional about that was like, I, I felt like that Glenn story and just like so many stories I was doing at that time were so repetitive about like this is not, and I, I you began to question. I began to question like my own sanity at certain points. Like, am I crazy? This doesn't seem that hard to be a decent human being who is not running roughshod over other people. So, so that was actually a turning point for me. And as I was pitching the book around, I said, "Look, I know a number of people in the industry who, as you know." I don't know of a single person in the industry who has not worked with someone who was abusive. I just don't. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm just running in the wrong Mm -hmm. crowd. Like abusive or in some way damaging, in no way interested in changing their behavior or evolving for the better. We all know what we're talking about here. So I just said to everybody as I was pitching the book around, and that, that was in the proposal that we sent out, if this is only a series of takedowns and this show was bad or that production was very po- problematic, I don't even want to do it. We have to show people there are a number of people on a number of fronts who have been trying to create better models of leadership and collegiality, and they've been successful. Like, you know, the, the go-to that I always go to is um, I first met Vince Gilligan. 30 years ago on the fox lot he had this tiny little cramped office um with like i remember a, there was a prop sign from one of his episodes um and, and the stuff in the corner and he was like this tall virginia guy like just stuffed into this tiny office and this was before fox had really exploded I mean, the simpsons was doing well but like the Simpsons, Idol, The X-Files, those guys. He
0: of- was on The X-Files at the time. He was on
1: The X-Files. Right. And for
0: those who don't know, Vince Gilligan is the uh, gentleman who created Breaking Bad.
1: Right, and co-created um, Better Call Saul with Peter Gould. And for 30 years, I've known people who've known Vince Gilligan. And for 30 years, they've all had the ability to just say no. You know, but I've never heard anything but that he runs a really um, collegial... Professional place where people can do, like, they do work hard. They really do. Everyone is held to a high standard, but
0: it's. He gives everybody credit, too. He
1: gives people credit. Sean Ryan is that way, Melinda Shu Taylor, you know, Javi Grigio, Markswatch. There are so many people I've talked to in the industry who, the minute you say, hey, I like your show, or I liked this episode, and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, the person who wrote that episode, or oh, you know what, the director had this great idea. And, you know, you're like that. You're always telling me about like, oh, well, you know, this is what this actor brought to that moment. And we have had many of wine soaked dinner where you're telling me the good and the bad of different collaborations. And so it was always on my mind that, you know, in the media, we know what gets clicks and what gets clicks is, oh, one one nightmare person creates drama or creates problems and whatever. And I've written my share of those stories, but I'm like, I would be doing a disservice to the industry and leaving everybody just super depressed and not willing to tell their friends, Hey, go buy this book. If I just did that, like, we know that the toxicity and the enabling happens, but what we need to know more about is that, These big, giant corporations that mostly control the industry, they could do a lot more to help people have the resources and training and support they need to run healthy environments. They just do. I don't think they do enough, and I I go into that in the book. They could and should spend more of their billions not on executive pay, but on actually paying their rank and file workers what they're worth. You know, paying for training and oversight and resources and all that. But that said, even despite all that, there are a lot of people uh, who are working with each other and drawing upon their own resources and their own mentors to to do to create a better industry. And I that's what kind of gives me hope is that everyone I talk to who has aspirations to be in the industry or is in the is in the like the lower rungs of it they understand they're going to have to work hard and they may have to work long hours. They're not, I don't, I don't really run across a lot of people who have this fabled, Oh, millennials don't want to work attitude. Like I honestly don't know where that comes from because I've never, I mean, I don't encounter that a lot. Um, I really do think though that the people rising up now, they don't necessarily think that they're they I think they're less willing to do something. Even I did. So I only indict myself. What I thought of as creativity or passion or driven or dedicated or excitable or whatever the euphemisms were, I think i even myself for a long time, without even thinking about it consciously, I think I may have given more of a pass or put certain behaviors in those categories that shouldn't have been in those categories, you know? Um, and I think people rising up now are like, look, I will work hard. I want to be, get better at my craft, whatever craft that is. I understand that people have different temperaments and that I have to compromise and get along with different kinds of people, but abuse is abuse. Misconduct is misconduct. And, you know, I, I do think that the, we've raised the bar in terms of, I hope the behavior that will be tolerated or won't be tolerated. That said, we just saw with the flash, you know, I do think that Ezra Miller, in the in the in the in the works that I've seen them in, is talented. That's not a reason to allow someone to engage in whatever behaviors they want to engage in. You know, it's just well, it's
0: and fun. I think uh, Warner Brothers, I think Warner Brothers did that movie. Yeah, they,
1: they um,
0: did. I, I think they paid a big price because I think the general population uh, Ezra Miller is poison that they don't want to go and see an Ezra Miller movie
1: and I and I think you know look I a big thing that I went into and I'm really happy that I went into in my book was um, there, there are degrees of dysfunction there are degrees of harm they're not all the same and one reason to write a book was you know if someone makes a comment to me that I that doesn't sit right with me and I go to them later and say you know what it didn't this didn't sit right to, with me and here's why and then they're like oh wow I didn't realize and then they alter their future behavior like that that's just how like sometimes that's how human relationships go in this industry though what people are always afraid of is what might happen because people with power are not used to being questioned, they're not used to having anything they do or say be questioned, and so you know, I had this long interview with Jeff Garland that was published in Vanity Fair a year or two ago, and
0: he's a monster
1: that those are your I'm words. I'm saying
0: it, yeah, those are my words. He's a monster
1: words I mean i here's the thing after reporting on Jeff Garland now for two plus years. His behavior on curb, on on the movie sets, and on, um, the Goldbergs for sure. I just I have talked to dozens of people who have alleged negative and harmful behaviors. Put it that way. But you also said some things which are interesting. Um, but like here's here's a perfect example of someone living in a bubble. When I spoke to him, at least he called me. You know, at least we talked. At least I was able to ask him things on the record. He didn't hide behind 85 layers of PR people and lawyers. One thing that I just couldn't make him understand was well, if people are going to complain about me to to HR, HR should tell me their names. And I'm like, why? A set PA (laughs) is going to do that? Jeff, you're a millionaire. You're on two high profile shows. You make a lot of money from comedy tours. You have movie career you have specials you are a big deal connected powerful rich person and this was something that more than one person alleged to me that if people were complaining about him he wanted to know their names and I'm like how do you not see that for exactly what it is which is I mean this is how it works in Hollywood all too often is that I do think people do try to make their discontent known and Here's the thing, you know, Jeff Garland said to me, oh, the crew of the Goldbergs, were, you know, it's it's a tight-knit bunch and everybody gets along and they love me. The first part of that statement was true. It was a tight-knit bunch and they did get along. Like I, I've t- I've now talked to many people who worked at the Goldbergs and a, across a, a whole range of capacities. But I think crews, my God, we barely scratched the surface of what crews have to put up with. In my book certainly and let me just tell you if if the allegation is that everyone in the gold Rush crew thought jeff garland was just the greatest that is not what my reporting revealed. let's put it that way
0: yeah um,
1: and i also just not I, why
0: they bounced him off the show if if he was such a prince
1: in in my 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 thing with that is they he he departed the show after nine seasons Ken, do you think that problems with his behavior only cropped up in season nine?
0: Of course not. They just reached a point where they just said it's just not worth it.
1: And, wh- you know, I will. He- here's what I want to say here, too, in that sort of spirit of, like, let's talk about the positive. I've heard nothing but great things about Wendy McClendon Covey. And honestly, I've never heard it. I've never, no one, people had plenty of opportunities. I've never heard um, anyone else in that cast not mm-hmm.
0: heard of her stuff. Mm-hmm. me neither
1: and and people uniformly they they went out of their way to talk about how much they love wendy and i'm like you know what i feel bad about here's what I, I feel bad for everyone but i feel bad about the fact that jeff leaves wendy is now you know number one on the call sheet but only for one season you know what i mean like she or i don't know exactly what the time frame was i'm like. I'm really tired of people who treat their colleagues well having to put up with stuff like this for years. Come on.
0: Well, my partner and I have a speech that we give a star Mm -hmm. if we are doing a pilot for them. We basically say, we're thrilled to be in business with you. We will work tirelessly nights and weekends to turn out a show that we are all very proud of. Mm -hmm. If you become a monster, we're in Hawaii.
1: Yeah.
0: We We just won't tolerate it. We quit. We just absolutely won't tolerate it. That you start counting lines, you start being abusive to other actors, you start driving our director nuts. Mm -hmm. And we left after a pilot. We had a pilot we had a star who the network insisted we take. Mm-hmm. And uh, after after a week, and after having talked to him about it and everything else, and it, it didn't get any better. And at the end of the week, we filmed the show because we didn't want to just pull the plug and cost all of the crew people mm-hmm. their pay. So we dragged the dead horse across the finish line to shoot it and and then we called the studio and our lawyer and agent and everyone said we're done if you want to recast it we're happy to do it we are never walking on a set with this guy again done
1: and i think that's like you know that's that's something that i think a lot of the people that i talk to in the industry like i honestly think in the last 10 12 years I think it's honestly even gotten harder to sustain an industry career because um, I think your daughter's in the industry, right? Yes, is she that is. Mm-hmm. And, that, you know, we're looking at shorter seasons. Um, very, it, it, A career was always precarious, could always be knocked off course by almost anything. But now you've got short seasons, smaller paychecks, having to hustle for more and more gigs, that, but you end up every year being paid less than the year before. And so I think on top of that, like industry workers are like, no, no, I'm not going to put up with that kind of nonsense on top of it. And what's cool about the response to my book, I honestly think, Ken, it wouldn't have been received the same way even five years ago. I think even for me, I'd been covering the industry for so long by the time Me Too came around, but that kind of rocked me to my core. You know, so much of what I reported on, what I was reading other people, I was like, what the? Like, I didn't, these, this, I've met this person. I didn't know, like, this is insane. So it was very, like, a whirlwind of pain and a whirlwind of revelations that came out. But I think what's interesting is that it's for, for people both inside the outside and outside the industry, definitely outside the industry, any intimation that this is a glamorous world was like the public, I think, is much more of a sense that, like, it's a job. You know, a guy, who is, a, you know, a camera operator or a makeup artist or, a, you know, a co-executive producer? They are people working at a job. They 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 are not that different in a way from um, a gig. Hollywood's always been a, a you know an industry of gig workers, and so. But now I think the public has much more of an inter- understanding that it's not glamorous. Most people aren't rich. I think I think what's happened over the last five or six years has kind of done away with that haze of, oh, it's a glamorous. It's not. It's really not. And and that's not to say that it isn't fun. The people that I respect the most in the industry work hard, you know, complain when there's stuff to complain about, which is often, but also really enjoy creating and collaborating and coming up with cool stuff to show the world. And that's always been true. But like, there's no reason... Like my husband works in the financial industry and it's so conservative. And so like, it's a Midwestern, it's a, it's a bank that has worldwide locations, but it's based in the Midwest. And I'm like, you have not met a more square group of people in the world, but it's so interesting. The culture of what will be tolerated in a Midwestern banking institution versus what's tolerated in Hollywood. Like I'll tell Dave stuff and he's like, Before I finished saying that sentence, HR would be at my desk, picking me up and bodily escorting me out the (laughs) door. He's like, Wow, how is this happening? I'm like, I know. This weird idea that people think, oh, because people are engaged in some kind of artistic endeavor, they must have some higher calling and they must be given some special leeway. And also, it must be a truly sustaining and fulfilling and kind collaborative work atmosphere. I'm like, that ain't. Mm, <laughs> that's not the I
0: wish. That's not the Hollywood I know. No, of course, but- one of the problems is you still have so many people who want to get into the industry. Of course. So it's, you know, if there wasn't a Writers Guild. Absolutely. then Then networks could pay $50 for a script.
1: And, that's what and they there want. would be
0: a line of people around the block who would be happy to take it.
1: Yeah, lately, my my thing is that Hollywood is both a cautionary tale and an inspiring example. Because in my industry, in the media, we there were unions in some places and they, those people were smarter. A lot of my industry wasn't unionized and we got hammered. You know, places go out of business, get ransacked, by you know these private equity goons it's a nightmare you know the number of jobs in the media has gone downhill and, you know people are like why isn't there more good reporting or good good cultural criticism i'm like because nobody has a job what are you talking about like <laughs> we tell the goons to stop destroying our publications just for sport i don't know um so yeah i mean i don't know i, just, I lost the train of my thought there for a minute but um it's not, it's not different from, you know, a, someone who's a grip on an Amazon show is not that different from someone who is driving a truck for Amazon, frankly. And the fact is we're seeing these waves of unionization in all of these different sectors because, but how we got there? Because, you know, in the 20s and 30s, when the organizing began, they, they all realized there's a line of people out the door willing to be exploited for nothing. For nothing, yeah we don't form guilds, like I feel like the I feel like what's um what motivated the guild formation, if I had to summarize it in a very you know uncouth way, we're gonna get screwed, but we're gonna get so much more screwed if we don't set up a guild. you know what I mean that really is what it comes down to. so I think you know if I maybe I don't know if this is mawkish or something, but I really look at those writers on the on the on the picket lines. And I think they're fighting the good fight for a lot of us because if AI takes any creative job, then we're all like, I don't know, like we're all living through some some science fiction dystopia ten within ten years, you know. I don't want it. Because I think human beings write the funniest jokes, create the coolest and funniest and silliest TV shows and movies. Um so I, I look at the job action that's going on right now and I'm like they are holding the line for a lot of us who appreciate what the industry does do well. And if they don't hold that line, I don't know what happens because, and thank God, there is a guild to hold the line. That's
0: I, I agree. I agree. I know people say, boy, in this day and age to go out on strike, when there's all these streamers where everyone has, Opportunities to watch all of these shows. It's not like we're crippling the networks anymore. But the right. truth is, if we don't strike and we don't hold the line, then the industry collapses. Then there there is no guilt. Is,
1: and and then the funny thing is, you know, it really chilled me, even though I wrote this book and I've been covering the industry for thirty years. It really chilled me. I think it was Chris um, is it Kaiser or Kaiser? Kaiser. Kaiser, he said something at a, a guild thing that I saw online that he said, I think repeating something Mike Schur had said, well, if there's 500 shows, they want 500 writers, period. End of story. They want one person. And I I have, I did write about this. They want one person beginning to end to be burnt out. They might give them an assistant, but they want, they really want to break the back of the guild and have it just be like a British model. You know, a lot of times in the UK, and I watch a lot of British shows, it's a six episode commitment. One person writes all the episodes. Maybe they farm out one or two or have one or two people helping them out. But I, I really love that, you know, Jesse Armstrong created the most arguably lauded and successful show in recent memory, Succession. He actually came out to a sort of uh, support action that British writers. Uh, put together in the UK. So he went out to this London rally and he said, he was interviewed for a few minutes and he said, the reason Succession was good was because we had a room. We all bounced ideas off of each other. We talked. And it wasn't just Jesse Armstrong you know, cranking out scripts, because at a certain point you know this, if you write 10 scripts in a row by yourself, by episode 7, you've lost the plot. Literally, you've lost your mind.
0: Right. Then there's this moron, Taylor Sheridan, very good writer from, you know, Yellowstone and all. And he says, well, I'll get out of television if I have to hire a staff because I do all of my writing. Fuck you.
1: Yeah. Honestly, fuck that guy. Fuck you. Because first of all, it's so insulting to everyone who does work on that show to present yourself as the sole auteur I mean, it's so arrogant, so tin-eared. And on top of that, um, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but the Writers Guild supplies people's health care. It supplies, if it's not funded, people don't have, you know, they can't take their kid to the doctor. You know, don't be such, if you're that powerful, recognize you can use your power for good. And I, I just, I don't understand. But the thing is, isn't he speaking... CEO love talk like that's that's what they want to hear they want to clone Taylor Sheridan and just have 10 you know dudes like him crank everything out and they're willing to throw money at those people by the way like Taylor Sheridan's not hurting for money but they want to have just one person cranking out scripts and none of these troublesome writing staffs
0: you know it gets back to something though that that you said where You don't have mentors. If you don't have a staff, then how are you going to bring people along? So it's fine for now. But who are those writers in five, six, ten years who are going to be creating shows if they have no experience? I mean,
1: David and I
0: were so lucky.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know,
0: we had Larry Gelbart and James L. Brooks and Marshall and Belson and Patchett and Tarsus. And, you know, we had these incredible mentors that we we learned from Gene Reynolds. Like, oh, my God, we were so fortunate. Well, without, without those people, you know. And that's, I'm terrible.
1: <laughs> no, it's that's and that's really what's inspiring about the writer's strike and why I again I do have hope for the industry. Because one thing that people don't know about the Writers Guild is the whole, the whole it residuals have fallen off a cliff, as I write about in my book. Residuals were that was a way to tide people over when they were in a dry patch and weren't working as much. But the, the thing about creation of residuals, and you know this, but I, I, I feel like I need to beat the drum on this every chance I get. The residuals, as we know them, came about because the writers at the time who were pushing to fold residuals into the whole compensation structure, they said this will only apply to future productions. They gave up. They gave up what could have – they could have said, oh, no, we want this to go back from the year zero of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. They gave up what could have been their money. Like They, they, they could have just said, well, no, we want to get ours, too. No, they said for future writers, we want this to be the way that it was. And that's what you see on the picket lines right now. A huge problem that I'm very, very upset about is everything that you just said. There has been more inclusion and diversity in the industry. There have been more people allowed to kind of like come in on the lower you know, ground floor, the the entry level jobs. And they have been filtering, folks been filtering up through the system but as people keep pointing out, you now have people reaching the mid-level point of their career or even upper-level writer status without having spent any time on set because they are not the mentorship and the training opportunities that you've got when you were working on a 22-episode-a-season show. We're, we're just, it's a it's a whole different ballgame. And I feel like people need to understand the writers are striking for yes, better pay, better residuals, all the things. But one of the things they're fighting for, and I think it's critical And every showrunner I've talked to in the last four or five years has been really, really concerned about this. They want those young people coming up, whoever they are, to be the next Quinta Brunson, to be the next Jesse Armstrong. They're not going to get those opportunities unless they know how to sit in an editing room and get that final cut ready. They know how to wrangle actors. They know how to take network notes. They know how to navigate. Like, there's now a, many, a, a few generations of people who, like, they know how to put the words on the page or maybe even take notes from their boss. But do they know all the other aspects of production? And it's we'll,
0: different skill sets. It's it really is. yes. So, you
1: know, and now everything is so IP-derived that... If I'm the head of the studio, am I going to give that gigantic IP property to someone who's never set foot on the set of the shows that she's worked on? They're not. I mean, yeah. this is this is what's breaking the pipeline.
0: I remember when David and I had a multi-camera pilot in 1979 at NBC that didn't go, got passed over for Pink Lady and Jeff, a but. Class.
1: I actually saw that show on air, like yes
0: one of my <laughs> a couple of years later, we joined the Charles Brothers mm-hmm. on the first season of Cheers, and we see Can you talk how, more
1: about that show, I've never heard of it,
0: yeah, yeah, it's you know it's just two hundred and fifty four and out okay. yeah, well, I'll have to look for it. we we saw Glenn and Les handle problems. That we didn't even know were problems. Right. And I remember saying to David, had NBC picked up our show three years ago, we would not have done that great a job because we were not ready and spending time with the Charles Brothers and really learning how to do this by the time we became showrunners. We were ready, but had NBC picked up that show, it wouldn't have been as bad as Pink Lady and Jeff, but it certainly would not have been as good as we would have wanted it to be because we just didn't have the chops to get it over the finish line.
1: A lot of people who are climbing the ladder now, the ladder, which is honestly crumbling beneath them, are being set up to fail. And that really upsets me because... Um, I feel like I feel so fortunate as a viewer and then as a critic and reporter to have come up in a world where I mean, I actually love the 22 episode season because you can take a chance. You can show spotlight, this actor, play up that relationship on screen. You can play around a lot more. And I do think it was an incredible training ground. And now, you know, um, I think, you know, Joe and he works for Vulture, he wrote a big piece about how the streaming model is broken, and the finances and how, it... and I sit there, Ken, and I go, the American television machine was a money printing machine that also trained a lot of really good people. Yes, there were issues with it. Yes, obviously, there were problems with the old model. Like I can, my whole book is a pretty much about the boy... what wasn't great about that model. So like, let's take that as a given. But at the same time, if you were a writer's assistant on a 22 episode show and you worked hard, you could get a job probably at that show or a different show, rise up the ranks and not just learn how to write, but see how other people, you know, a good writer's room is a cast of characters like this person's created character, that person is a joke machine, this person really understands structure the showrunner is showing me how to wrangle this problem. And how does, how does the showrunner solve that problem? It's an example machine, you know? And it printed money. It print, like it was so, everyone around the world wanted that. It, they wanted what we had. And now it's, it's being dismantled for parts. And I don't love it, you know? I don't love that.
0: Nope, There's me neither.
1: Nice me, but, but I feel like the good things of the old model, if they get stripped away completely, that'll be a disaster.
0: Right. Well, on that happy note.
1: Yeah, Mo, we're <laughs> pressing people since forever.
0: The book is called Burn It Down, Power, Complicity, and a Call for Change in Hollywood. Mo, thank you so much. This has been great.
1: Thank you so much, Ken. This has been awesome.
0: And there you go. That's my two-part interview with Maureen Ryan. Once again, the book is called Burn It Down, Power, Complicity, and a Call for Change in Hollywood. It's a terrific book. I recommend it. Okay, our thanks as always to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, to Howard Hoffman, John Wilford, Bruce, and Jason Miller. My email address, should you wish to connect with me, is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. And please follow me on Instagram. You know, when I post those cartoons, uh, it really, you know, sort of helps my fragile ego to have people like them. So uh, d- do that if you get a chance. But uh, more importantly come back next week for another episode of Hollywood and the Fine